0: Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Greetings from Carlisle and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Colonel Buck Habrichter, a member of the War Room editorial team and a faculty member here at the War College. I'm joined in the studio today by Lieutenant General Paul T. Miklashek, U.S. Army retired. General Miklashek was a career infantryman with 35 years of service in the Army. In addition to his service as Inspector General, he served as the Commanding General, 3rd United States Army, Army Forces Central Command. And as Coalition Land Forces Component Commander, he commanded all ground forces in Afghanistan and the Middle East during Operation Enduring Freedom. Welcome, sir.
1: Thanks, Buck. Really glad to be here and enjoy the opportunity to participate in the war room.
0: Good to have you, sir. Also in the studio is Dr. Greg Kentwell. Greg is currently the director for the Joint Forces Land Component Commander Program and the Army War College Highly Qualified Expert Senior Mentor Program. He is also a retired Army officer with 30 years of service as an Army aviator. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Buck. I appreciate the opportunity. These two gentlemen have joined me today to discuss large-scale ground combat. But we're not going to talk about the battles of in the conflict phase that movies are made of. We're actually going to talk about the preparation of the theater that is ultimately far more important in the competition phase. So I think the easiest way to start this off is ask the question, first and
2: foremost, what is a field army, and what is it that it does? Okay, Buck, well, I appreciate the question. I'm going to jump on that one uh, as the doctrinal guy here. You get back to, we've got geographic combatant commanders that have geographic areas of responsibility. Underneath each one of them, they have a service component command, and that's where we get to the Army service component command. There's also a Navy service component command, Air Force, Maritime, etc., for all of the services. And they're the ones that provide the warfighting forces for the geographic combat command to be able to do his job. Underneath the Army service component command, we have the Field army and an example that we have right now is the army in Korea. They've got a specific geographic focus where they become experts in it. They also have an operational requirement to um, face a near peer competitor or a significant competitor that would require a multi core kind of response, and in most cases, a multinational response.
1: So that is the the field army. But I would like to talk about the theater army. Mm-hmm. One of the key things it does, as you alluded to, is it sets the theater for multi-domain operations. And perhaps the best way to describe it is a couple of examples of things a theater army can do. First, its presence. By its sheer boots on the ground, an army presence, the physical, active, visible presence every day is an important uh, asset that can give the geographic combatant commander. It facilitates access for others, for government, for non-government, for other aspects of our military, and even commercial entities. It establishes credibility. And the Army Force, as I've said, with boots on the ground, a presence, regardless of its size, is a powerful political statement, and it tells our host nation that we're willing to share the risks that they, that they have. And then it provides practical, tactical, operational capabilities, including command and control, communications, uh, set up and established and working. It can become experts in intelligence and theater awareness bathed in an information and intel environment that there are day-to-day experts living and breathing in the culture and environment in which they live perhaps the biggest most powerful thing they can do is in the field of logistics they can be prepared for the reception staging onward movement integration of forces set up the aerial and seaports of embarkation and as Greg said, provide all these requirements of Army support to other services as executive agents, common user land transportation, and humanitarian assistance. And then they can coordinate, facilitate, and help on security and protection, which will assure the host nation, but include some practical matters like air and missile defense, base defense, and consequence management. And then maybe for the long term, they develop a degree of knowledge and expertise in the theater and in the region that breeds a pool of experts in that area by its consistent presence and constant turnover and adding of new people and new uh,
0: experts so if i can just in, in the simplest of terms for our listeners if we're talking about something like PACOM, Pacific Command, this is what the components of PACOM are doing on a day-to-day basis in a non-war scenario, as we talk about setting the theater. All these things are their day-to-day job that they're doing on a regular basis. Yeah,
1: exactly. And and uh, and as we get into discussion, it's what we are doing in the competitive phase is where they are, and that's day-to-day
2: conflict. I understand you've had experience, personal experience, in having to, to do this starting from a a flat-footed start, so to speak, as a commander. If you would tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and probably the best example is uh, the conditions we set for uh, Operation Enduring Freedom and uh, Iraqi Freedom at the same time as our um, SENT and 3rd U.S. Army. So we set conditions for one expected course of action, which really was the defense of Kuwait is what we were all about up until September 11th, uh, 2001. But then the circumstance changed and ended up doing something entirely differently. Even though it was the wrong set, uh, so to speak, it did prove invaluable and essential to what we did in OEF and then OIF, Operation Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom. So we had a dual mission. One was as the Theater Army, uh, the Army Service Component Command, and also the Joint Forces Land Component Command at a coalition level. But what we did, we f- had four deployed forces, we had pre-positioned sets of equipment, we had our air and missile defense set up, a rudimentary command and control system, and we had an active and enduring theater security cooperation plan with all the nations in the region, particularly those in the Gulf, but, but elsewhere in um, the uh, new dimensions then of CENTCOM in the so-called STAND lands, uh working on theater security cooperation we had an aggressive exercise program so all of those things were there and then we had to shift gears to afghanistan for operation enduring freedom so we had our processes and procedures in place to become a coalition joint force land component command to synchronize the land operations and support humanitarian assistance in uh, in afghanistan we uh, deployed command and control to upgun what we had on hand in theater, changed our intel focus, obviously, from uh, one theater to the other, uh, had to shift the logistics node, the framework for which was already there. Most significantly, we, we stood up this joint civil military operational task force to help uh, enable NGOs back, non government organizations back into Afghanistan. We had to integrate a large coalition from all sorts of contributors, uh, allies, partners, uh, willing uh, contributors to the operations in uh, Afghanistan and elsewhere. And we had to continue to coordinate with our regional partners, all the other agencies, uh, and then keep the security cooperation going in Horn of Africa, the other parts of Central Asia. So all of that was enabled by having the theater set again even though for the different mission it were the, it was those kinds
2: of things that made a difference we talk about joint headquarters and we talk about joint task force and none of that exists prior to boom so to speak so once something bad happens the only one he can go to sounds like is the you in your position and it's quite a bit of responsibilities that you've got to take care of in the entire theater as well as manage that whatever that crisis is that has just occurred It sounds like you're wearing several hats there.
1: That's true, and um, it does become a big challenge to be able to do that, although we were prepared both, uh, I think, philosophically and through exercises to recognize the different sort of responsibilities. Of course, nothing like a real-world scenario focuses the effort and then makes you realize all the things that you wish you could have done or were resourced for. Uh, and and it requires an incredible amount of effort, and it takes a uh, staff that can be adaptive and flexible enough and have the means to expand and integrate coalition partners, other services, uh, in uh, provide them the expertise, the facility, the SOPs that need to be done, and all this can be done during your day-to-day operations, as you described, if you have the
2: resources and the and the people and the mission focus. So this gets back to, as we start talking about our, I guess the concept that's out there now is this multi-domain operations. And it's not just a land problem anymore. It it sounds like we're dealing with the cyber domain. We're dealing with uh, issues with intelligence going on. We've got economic issues. We've got uh, maritime issues. we have got airspace issues. You've got all of these things that have to be coordinated. And as our adversaries look at our strengths and our vulnerabilities, They've become much better at trying to foil us, if you will, and keep us uh, away from getting to our objectives of being able to do whatever it is. But that competition phase, the theater army sounds like they still have a lot of things that they've got to be able to do. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And that's
1: uh, really an important capability that the theater army can have and should have. Uh, as you look at those, of course, all the things that I mentioned about the physical aspects of setting the theater is important. But if you look at the competition phase, as you said, and what's going on in there in terms of all of those things, but information warfare and information operations is one, I think, that we really need to take a hard look at and enable the theater army to be able to participate in, in this. I think, generally speaking, in the competition phase, uh, we we need, need to not be passive. You talk
2: about the this. competition phase, but that may not be familiar to everybody out there. So I think what we're talking about is um, some people will call it that gray zone or any sort of conflict prior to actual armed conflict Con- or or physical shooting of things going back and forth. So this competition, I guess, is, used to be called phase zero for military folks, but it's just the day-to-day operations when we're not at war, so to speak, In the physical sense of people shooting at each other
1: right but i but i also think it recognizes that there is efforts going on as you said to disrupt what we're trying to do uh, in a different form whether it's called gray zone warfare hybrid warfare but it's an
2: active operation being conducted by our Adversaries. Well, that's a good point. There's a lot of things that have to happen, right. even if we're not at war, and especially if we think that we may have to go to war by some of our contingency plans or operational plans to meet the nation's objectives. So uh, I guess some of the attendees that we have that come to the Joint Force Land Component Commander course are aspiring land component commanders, and looking at all of the responsibilities that the Army is required by law or by u um, s code or by the service responsibility to other services it's almost staggering to take a look at all that they're required to do. You've had experience in this and perhaps you can you talk more about how you you see those challenges and protection things like that that you've had to deal with well um,
1: as I said clearly you need a staff of expertise maybe uh, it doesn't need to be a huge number of people, but it's a matter of having Uh, the experts who can who can manage and plan these things and then you have to make decisions on how you're going to prioritize what you can do and what you want to or need to uh, defer and um, so that's an everyday everyday struggle in terms of prioritization but I think if you keep your focus on the overall broad case of setting the setting the conditions in the theater in terms of, of exercise program INTEGRATION WITH THE HOST NATION, WITH OTHER COUNTRIES THAT MAY PARTICIPATE, uh, IT it WILL GO A LONG WAY uh, TO HELP uh, SETTLE THOSE THINGS, AND and IT'S A CONSTANT STRUGGLE FOR RESOURCES uh, AS A COMMANDER AND THE STAFF, BECAUSE IT'S uh, LIMITED, AND THAT'S NOT GOING TO CHANGE ON ANY, WHETHER IT'S uh, BUDGET, EQUIPMENT, PEOPLE, most primarily opportunities that you see that you just can't afford to do for one reason or another. But it's a matter of balancing all of those and trying to get at the uh, core mission that uh, you have. Uh, And it's an everyday everyday thing. And that's why I think having a uh, active headquarters of some size, Army Service Component Theater, Army on the ground, uh, enables all those things for the good of the Joint Force and for our operations uh, we make. We may conduct.
0: If I could break it for just a minute, you've mentioned three times now, sir, talking about exercises and the mm-hmm. importance of them. To anybody who hasn't pr- participated in a large-scale military exercise, uh, I don't think people necessarily. I mean, they obviously understand that we need to practice our skills; they're perishable, and 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 more often than not, we're thinking of the warfighter. But I think it's important to point out that in a in a place of limited resources and personnel, often what happens in a wartime scenario is forces deploy in and fall in on that that uh, that staff and in that staff and, and their, their planning, they've made all kinds of assumptions. Exercise is the first time you're able to try and figure out which of those assumptions are correct, which are incorrect. Quite often there's logistics and, and communications issues that are pointed out that no one's ever thought of before. Uh, you find best practices, you find worst practices and shortcomings. Obviously exercises are crucial to a component, component commander uh, as, as well as the combatant commander for the entire theater as, as to how they're gonna eventually, if called upon, uh, exercise th- those forces.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, you hit all the buttons on why you do exercises. And, and it doesn't have to, while it would be nice, equate to uh, huge numbers of people and equipment, things running around different countries. Um, you can gain an awful lot by uh, war games and uh, command post exercise type events that we have done. I think the CENTCOM series of exercises they used to do called Internal Look really helped get at all those things that you talked about, the integration of the staff, the SOPs and procedures, that, so that become somewhat routine. And then you just modify them for the circumstance mm-hmm. and that, I, I think, is uh, is really important.
0: Greg, you started off with the Korean theater. I mean, the, the Korean theater is infamous for command posts and staffing exercises that more often than not don't involve any, any operational forces. It's just a, simply a look at how are we going to actually control this whole process should it happen and, and resupply it at the time.
2: You're absolutely right. And um, there's an additional focus now going, going back to if you, you know, history is repeating itself, so to speak. We used to be very active in Europe, and we used to do these reforger kind of exercises where you'd take a large – force from the United States and project them forward as if we were responding to a um, Soviet threat at the time. Now We've gone past having the Soviet Union out there, but um, we've assumed some risk in our theater army structures than all the, the resources and all the expertise that we used to have, not just in the military, but our coordination with the civilian counterparts that would run the ports that would accept the the inflow of a massive amount of new military equipment and people a lot of those relationships and a lot of those practices have atrophied on the military side as well as on the civilian side so Rebuilding those structures takes time, takes effort, and that's the theater army's job to do all of that on a daily basis. So we have assumed risk by reducing the theater army headquarters, because many people think headquarters, that's a bad thing, and it must be unnecessary overhead. As military professionals, we got to get beyond that, and we've got to talk to what is it that's the science as well as the art of moving masses, amounts of people, and Establishing the relationships, getting the authorities, and getting the resources in place so that we have operational, um, credible plans to be able to enact if the nation calls on us to do them. Otherwise, some would say that if bad things happen with a near-peer competitor and they decide to do something, our only options are do nothing and watch or go to global nuclear war. And you got to ask yourself, what's the role of the Army if that's, what relevance do we have? You know, you've can you got an Army of two people, if that's the answer, guys to push buttons, I guess. But, um, you know, what is the role of the Army then if we're going to be credible and give options to our national uh, decision makers? Well, there is one thing, I, I think, and I've thought about uh,
1: what we can do in this competition phase, realizing that our... Uh, adversaries or potential adversaries or competitors or whatever you want to call them at this point is that they're actively engaged. They are doing things to disrupt whatever they think we might want to do, set conditions to enable uh, whatever they are headed towards or want to. Uh, want to do and they are they're active in unconventional warfare information warfare disinformation misinformation manipulation of the media this is going on every every day and um, certainly in the cyber uh, domain they're very active Uh, I think uh, that we the U.S. Army we'll figure out how to counter and deter a large-scale ground combat operation as as you described. I mean we're we are good. Nobody does it better, really. And it we'll we'll get there and they need to be fearful of us being able to do that and should. But uh, it it could be a long time coming. And they could have an influence on us as a nation and our our partners and our allies and affect a M- macro strategic outcome if they're successful in winning in the competition phase, which uh, without ever going to the conflict phase. So what are some of the things we can do and what role would a theater army play in doing this? And I think, uh, the information operation is an ideal one that, where we can develop the t- tools, the techniques, the uh, it will take a national-level campaign, strategic campaign, uh, to do this that uh, counters
2: our adversaries' efforts to manipulate us. And some, you, so, d- you talked about sir, that information operations. That, that may be something that everybody's not familiar with, but I think you're talking about the, the power of information, if you will, or the power of public opinion it gets back to and what people believe and what people understand and where they get their information and once they have that set in their beliefs and their values it's very hard to overcome any of that and if we if we yield that i guess to our adversary you're saying that it's very right. hard right it puts for us at a disadvantage so so talk to me more and about gives, the theater army's role in in providing information it almost sounds like a uh, psychological operations kind of uh, event but I'm, i know it's not that so no you know. I th- it,
1: and again it it needs to be uh, And this is not something that the Army would do on its own, and it would not be an independent operator. This is a very sophisticated, complex world. Uh, And certainly has to be, as I said, um, a national-level information campaign that lasts a long time. I mean, the results and the output of these are difficult to measure, but I think we need to not just sit and watch it unfold. So I, I think the first step is... Is to recognize what uh, we need to discredit on the part of these adversaries. Uh, we need to be able to have the means to understand what their disinformation and misinformation efforts are and the effect of them, and expend effort <clears throat> to disrupt that that thought. The things that they are they are doing. So again, that's why it's it's a very sophisticated, delicate and And has to be centrally pretty well controlled. but I think uh, having an organization on the ground who has those capabilities that I talked about with people who have the knowledge and expertise of the of the environment, which is not just the geographic terrain but also the political, social, economic environment that is taking place in in a country, and is linked in with the key U.S. national interest and in either for the State Department or, or others, the commercial entities, that can see and understand what's going on and help facilitate. It would be a means, the theater army would be, just like it is for a military operation, there's a role to play. You have certain tasks that you have and you execute them and follow up and assess their effects. Uh, but I, So I think, I think a theater army is ideally suited Right. To support that, and and within the authorities that it has, and it might, because of its presence on the ground, could be sensitive to some of the effects of these um, uh, disinformation and misinformation efforts. That it could become a, become aware of that much more quickly sure. than than otherwise waiting to see something. Uh, it, it, it's it's um, something that I think requires an awful lot of discussion and debate. But I think the theater army is a key element in. And in providing the army capability to defeat this.
2: And it gets back to as we were talking about, we've assumed some risk in reducing headquarters. Some of those capabilities require intelligence that's persistent, that stays right. there and learns these things years after year after year to understand what an action by the government or what an action by the military um actually means that as as opposed to we just observe something happening, we understand what that the implications of that are. And I guess you're saying the um uh, the military has to accept the – have an awareness of the power of information and be cognizant of that as opposed to, you know, information can be just as deadly as, as a – Right. And we don't arm. want to wait
1: until we get in the conflict zone to start executing information Absolutely. operations there. There's a, the, as I said, our, our adversaries are very aggressive at, at doing this, and um, we should not just give them a bye.
2: And that sounds it sounds like what we started talking about with the field army and why you would need a field army, because the theater army, if you look at, we'll just take Europe for an example or the Pacific for an example, that they have a huge area of responsibility and it's not a homogeneous environment either. So having field armies in place that, that further helps out the theater army, having someone that has a specific geographic focus and can understand these things much better, and it gives us a, as you talked about, you got to have a lot of staff that are trained and qualified. That gives you an additional operational headquarters that perhaps additional forces from the United States or from wherever can come and fill in on that at least gives you a core element to start with. Well, gentlemen, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but this has been an excellent
0: discussion of what we uh, probably take for granted on many occasions as to what's going on in any of the theaters that we're involved in, but is actually obviously an incredibly complicated, incredibly sophisticated and multi-layered approach. Uh, and we're simply looking at this point at, at, at the Army's input to it in particular as without stepping back for further look at, at what the joint community does and what the, the combatant commander does. Uh, obviously, this gets more and more complex the more players you add to it. So thank you very much for your time here today. Uh, We appreciate this. I'm sure the the listeners have enjoyed this, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again sometime soon.
2: Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Buck.
0: And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu